All right, so uh, we're going to do something just a little bit different tonight uh, than our usual format. Uh, we just kind of, as we dug into this concept of image of God, and, and just through, honestly, every one of our Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 over the last few weeks, we just realized, man, there is so much there that we want to say, and there is so much stuff that we end up just having to cut or things that we thought, man, it'd be cool to go down this road, but we didn't really even have time, either in our study or on, on this night, to go down that road. And so we just, we just decided it's, it's too important. There's, there's too much here. And so we need to come back and revisit this. And so uh, what we're going to do tonight is, is just talk about some of the things, uh, first of all, that, that we wish we could have said in the last few weeks to you as we are going through stuff that we just love to, to think through and look through, but didn't get a chance to really go through. Um, and then, so we're going to do that for the first half. Scott and I'll chat just a little bit about some of the stuff that was on our minds and hearts. And then uh, in the second half, we're going to say, okay, so where do we go from here? With this stuff that is true about the image of God, how does that project out into the rest of Scripture and then into the rest of our lives? Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll do that in the second half. But first of all, um, Scott, you want to kind of start with, yeah. with some of the stuff that, that you've been thinking through? So, you know... <clears throat> Those of you who are new, we're in, we're in the book of Genesis, and um, in this is the first time I've ever really taught through it systematically, and so in studying for it, preparing for it, I read a lot and, and listened to a lot, and, and really, there's so many things that kind of came out. There's so much in the first three, four chapters of Genesis that, are, that shape everything else in Scripture, and, and so there's some big things, but, the, but one of the things, I have two things, two little things I want to talk about. One of them, is just, this first one is just really interesting to me, and it's this idea that when God made the world, he made it good, not perfect. So think about that. God didn't make the world perfect. He said it was good, and there's a difference. Here, here's how I thought about it. Um, I guess I just assumed that, you know, God made this perfect world, and then, you know, we mess it up, and He's just taking thousands and thousands and thousands of years to get it back to perfect again. And I always kind of wondered, like, why? Why is it taking so long? Like, why did you have to start with this one man, Abraham, and then go, you know, to his family, and then his relatives, and then all these other things? Why did it take so long? You know? And so... So this idea of it being, um, of it being good and not perfect, really changes things for me, and it really kind of emphasizes how God it really kind of created this world, not this perfect world, but created this this like good canvas in some sense. That's maybe a way to think about it. Is like this canvas that that God created, um, that he, and He enlisted His image bearers us to kind of partner with him to make this into the world that he wants it to be. So it's kind of a different idea. Yeah, think through this for a second, because um, the idea being if, if God didn't make, uh, if everything was perfect, I mean, that's how I thought, everything was perfect. And, and so I used to have to wrestle with things like, where did mosquitoes come from? Um, did mosquitoes just appear because we sinned? And so automatically, just magically, they just, okay, now you get mosquitoes with this stuff. Or, or even things like, uh, like lions, uh, lions are like inherently dangerous creatures, and part of the beauty and majesty of those things are their danger. And so I had this thing in my mind that um, nothing in those uh, that that lions themselves were 
maybe like super tame and like little kitty cats until sin came. But that even, even that idea actually almost robs lions of some of the majesty and the beauty. And so this concept that, that God didn't make it exactly perfect, he made it good and he made it right, ready for us to partner alongside of him in yeah. cultivating it and making it right was kind of really huge for me. So yeah. Yeah. that's huge. Um, let me share with you kind of another, uh, another thing that, that really hit me. As I was thinking through this image of God thing, I was reading through, I mentioned this, this scholar John Walton that we've used a lot. And one of the things that uh, John Walton says is, inherent in what it means to have the image of God is that human beings have these three qualities that are just kind of inherent in them. And the first one, he says, is dignity. Um, and then the next one is responsibility. And I'll, walk th- I'll, I'll talk about these in just a second. And then the last one, he says, is potential. So, in these, which you have, dignity, that every person, because they're made in the image of God, and because God is inherently valuable and worthy and beautiful, that in every person there is inherent worth and value that comes with them. Okay? Um, the second thing is that... Uh, being human comes with this inherent idea that we ought to be responsible for the things that God has given us, that we're supposed to be taking care of those things. Um, I, I grew up hearing that having dominion over the earth meant that we get to do what we want with it, that we can kind of treat, treat it how we want to treat it. Um, but that's not actually the idea. Um, that responsibility means that we actually care for these things, that we take care of these things, um, just as God would. And this last one is potential. And that is that every human being comes within them the capacity to become more and more like God, to become greater and greater in what they are. And so these three things in there become really important. Um, We said, so this kind of hits up the next, we said that um, being made in the image of God means three things, three R words. Uh, First of all, that uh, we represent God. And this is where this kind of touches up against this idea of dignity, um, that we rule on God's behalf, which hits up against this idea of responsibility, and then that we relate to God. And as we relate to Him, we come more and more like Him. Um, I just want to, we, we could talk about these things for a little bit, but I just want to talk about this for a second, because this is fascinating, I think, in today's age, um, that our culture, the modern Western culture, has an obsession with rights has an obsession with human rights, that, that people ought to have the right to free speech or the right to bear arms or the right to choose to live how they want to choose. The reason, though, that you see so much fighting that goes on about this and so little um, real work take place over these things is because we have divorced human rights from the image of God, which means we've divorced it from the inherent dignity in everybody. And when people, when we lose the dignity within every human being, when I don't have the ability to see that, um, then I might be able to get some rights for people or for myself, but those things will never fully last. Or sometimes those rights will even work against it. For, for example, um, for a long time people have fought and are still fighting for women to have equal status, equal opportunity in employment. Uh, equal opportunity for pay, equal opportunity for um, position in in the job or in kind of the economy and, and in the place of employment. Uh, but the issue becomes if, I, if I'm only able to fight for somebody's rights and we're not able to give somebody dignity, then like what the Me Too movement shows us is that that person will be able to work there and then they may be degraded through sexual harassment. 
where for a long time people fought to get rights for minorities to be a part of the like same schools like integration or to find those kind of opportunities. But if all I'm fighting for is rights, um, without the ability to see the God-given dignity in every human being, then I'll still oppress those people or those people will still experience difficulty and struggle because we've only handed them stuff without actually finding dignity within them. And then sometimes, actually, when I fight for my rights, it works against the God-given dignity within me, uh, which is uh, like, like if I choose to live however I want to, I can actually degrade myself. I can actually work against what God has given me. Or, or when I choose to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, um, consent or no consent, I rob that person of dignity because I take someone who is an image bearer and I use them for my own personal pleasure. And, and so rights will always flow from dignity. When I can see somebody as made in the image of God, I'm going to want to extend to them the rights that are inherent in that. Um, Dignity does not always flow from rights. If all I ever do is fight for my rights or others, I actually often work against it. And and so this idea, when Walton pointed this out, that the reason people are so obsessed with rights and yet there's still so much injustice in the world is because there's a lack of this. And and I thought that that was really fascinating. Yeah, that is huge. So, So, like what you said, rights flow from dignity, but dignity doesn't always yeah. flow from, yeah. from rights. And if you emphasize one, you may not get the other. But if you emphasize that one, you'll always get the other. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and if I spend, even think for yourself, like the inability, like if, if my obsession is with fighting for my rights, um, that not only doesn't always work, that also actually ends up turning on me sometimes and making me selfish. But if I can spend more time focusing on the God-given dignity of what it means in me to be an image bearer. And so many of us have lost that, lost the, the idea of the, the greatness of God within a human being in ourselves, and yet we're also very nervous about losing our rights and the things that we want, that we feel like we're entitled to. And so we spend most of our life fighting rather yeah. than enjoying. You know? yeah, so. That's good. Yeah, that's big. So another one that, that came up, um, and actually I didn't get to talk about this because last week, Rachel and Morgan were here and they talked through chapter 3 but um, it's a difference when God sees something good and when we see something good um, so in Genesis Genesis 1 actually this frame this refrain or this this um, repeated idea happens several times seven different times where it says and God saw that it was good and God saw that it was good and God saw that it was good you see this over and over and over each day right so every time God sees something that was good, he does, he does a couple things. He gives and he blesses to it. And then, and then the same kind of idea happens in chapter 3. When Eve sees the tree, sees that it's good, and she does something to it. What does she do? She takes. She takes it for herself, right? And, and, so, does, and so does Adam. So... Well, this this has been blowing me away. Like, like there's these um, there's these patterns, there's these repeated ideas that kind of run throughout Scripture. That um, I mean, a- across centuries. Like, so the Bible is written f- f- over a span of fifteen hundred years by forty different authors, and 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 so there's no way for them to have collaborated, right? And and all of these things were compiled later. But to see how these stories get, get put together. So Rachel mentioned last week, she mentioned the, the Israelites at the Mount Sinai. 
So another one that's really interesting is in the book of Judges. So in Judges, Judges is kind of like the dark period of the nation of Israel's time. Like it's, for us, well, for the church, it's like the Crusades. Okay, Crusades, not so good time. We're, we're, we're not real proud of the Crusades. But for Israel, it was like, that's the Judges. And there's this line in, in the book of Judges that, that says over and over and over, happens over and over and over. It says um, that they did what was right in their own eyes. So, so, so they, they saw what they wanted, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And I think that's not a coincidence, that it's connected to this bigger, deeper problem that when humans see what they want and they go after it, it's usually not good for them. Because in, in Judges, every time that happened, then the people of Israel would fall away from the Lord, they'd, they'd, they'd worship all these other idols, they would do all these things, and, and bad things would happen. Destruction would come, right? So think about the, the story of maybe David and Bathsheba. If you're familiar with that story in 2 Samuel 11. So here's King David. He's finally king. He's up on his roof. It says, at a time when most of the kings were at war, David was at home, on his couch, actually. And he goes up on his roof, and he sees Bathsheba. And it says, he sees her, and she's beautiful to him. In other words, it's good for him. He, he likes what he sees. So he sends for her, and he takes what wasn't his. And he uses it for his own selfish, pur- selfish purposes. And so I think it's just... I think it's just interesting. I, I've never seen these connections that go all the way back to, to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 that are, that it's, it's almost like God is giving us a, a picture or a helping us with see this like pattern of human nature that is kind of there. And, and, and so one of the things Drew and I were talking about several weeks ago that, that, um, that I think is just, it's just fascinating to me, and it happens to all of us. So I'll start with this question. What does it feel like, you don't have to answer it out loud, but what does it feel like to be wrong? Think about that. So what does it feel like to be wrong? So if you're like most people, when you, when you think through what does it feel like to be wrong, you think about uh, you feel bad, maybe you feel dumb, or maybe you feel foolish, or you, you maybe you're ashamed, or you're embarrassed. But actually, what you're describing is, you're describing the moment that you realize you're wrong. Actually, what it feels like to be wrong is the same as what it feels like to be right. Does that make sense? So, when you realize you're wrong, then you feel those things. But let's, let's talk about two days before. You didn't know you were wrong. You thought you were right. Actually, you were wrong. You were wrong then, too. Right? And so, this idea of self-deception is, is, a, is a bigger deal than I think we think. And, and I have noticed this in my life. I, I've started tuning in to, uh, I don't know what, at what point in my life, but I started to kind of tuning into the times in my life where I deceived myself. Like, do you know, do you know how you deceive yourself? Have you thought about that? Um, like, when you see something that you think is good for you to do, and then you realize later that was not good for me to do. 
I, I saw what I wanted and I went for it or I took it or I did it. And actually it wasn't good for me. And have you noticed that pattern in your life? It's a pretty fascinating idea to think about us deceiving ourselves, of doing things that we know we shouldn't do, but we do them anyway, or, or tricking ourselves into doing something that we regret later, or, or maybe believing something that we know really isn't true, but we, we believe it anyway. And so, like, I, I was just thinking about things in my life, lines maybe, that you, that you and I might identify with. Um, Things like, uh, I know I probably shouldn't get too, too um, close too soon with, with him or with her, but I really want to. Or, or, I can handle alcohol. It's fine. I'm of age. I can do this. I can drink this. It's fine. Or, Social media doesn't affect me. I know it can be addicting, and I know I probably need to keep a watch on it, but I can handle this. I can do this. Or I can watch that sex scene. It's fine. It's, 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 I know it's wrong, but it doesn't affect me. Or I can binge on, on Netflix. I've studied hard. I've had a hard, long week. I've had three tests. Um, and so I'm just going to binge on it. So if the question is, uh, can you do those things and still live, then yeah, you can handle it, I guess. But this is what is interesting. You know, now, for me, as 40, at 42 years old, I can look back on my life over the last however many years, 20-plus years, and go, yeah, all those things I thought I could do actually did have an effect on me. You know, I, I deceived myself into doing things that I thought I could handle and really, really actually couldn't. So it's just a fascinating idea, that, that this idea that, that when God sees something, He gives to it and He blesses, and it's good. But when we, this pattern throughout Scripture, when we see something that we think is good, and we go for it, it turns out to not be good for us. And so how do we wrestle with that? How do we, you know, how do we learn to recognize when we're deceiving ourselves? I think, I think about that in, in relation actually to connection to older believers and this idea of stuff. Um, so I think Randy Garris just said this to us. He may have said this at the retreat thing, and I can't remember if I shared it with some of you or all of you. Um, <laughs> But Randy Gears had this really great line, um, uh, the devil, like, uh, like, like a wolf when hunting its prey, like his best, um, one of his best tricks is to try and isolate you from community. But if he can't do that, he's going to try to isolate you to your peers. Um, if he can't get you um, alone by yourself, then his next best thing is to make sure you only hang out with people your age and only other people who can be just as self-deceived as you. And this is why it matters so much, why we stress things like connection to older believers. How do you know if you are the kind of person who can handle this kind of relationship right now? How do you know if you are the kind of person who can handle having a drink here or there? How do you know if you, and the answer is for most of you, you probably don't. And, and your roommate may or may not be the best person to, to be able to answer that question for you. Um, but having relationships with older, mature people who are further along in their faith, who've been down that road, who know you well and know your flaws and, and your strengths and all those things, those kind of persons can help you with those. And yeah. so I think it really does touch up with this value of ours. Yeah, so I read through this thing. It just points to different scripture every week. It's, it's, um, and I think two days ago, First um, John 2 was, was in my reading. And so I'd read this, and, I, and, I, and it... I never really made these connections. But listen to what it says in, in 1 John 2. 
It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, and then he kind of describes everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And it says, And and the world with its lust is passing is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. And I just I've always kind of wondered why the lust of the eyes. What why is that in there? And I wonder if if it's like this it's this connection all the way back to the garden, like these things that we see that we think we that look good for us and we chase after. They just they aren't good for us. So then the question is how do we how do we determine? What's good for us? So yeah, those are those are a couple things I have. Do you have any? That's that's it for me. Yeah. Okay. So we'll take we'll take a little break, and then we'll come back, and uh, and then Drew and I have we both have one, each have one thing that we're going to spend a little more time on that we're excited to talk about. So take a break. Use the restroom if you need to. Thanks. Hi. Um, you've got me excited right now because I know the answer to your question. So, first of you, I'm Carson Elmore. Sorry, I met you at yeah, we met uh, the cookout thing. Hi. Yes. Cool, man. Uh, Carson? I'm Carson. No Carson. Carson Elmore. Yes. Okay. How'd you hear about the thing? Um, I met at the cookout. I had a class conflict, and then Sarah Oliver told me that we last long enough so I could come next year. Oh, okay. So, so, so you came to the, are you here to hang out the rest of the night? I well, if y'all are here till midnight, I've got to do it. Are you going to sit down and join us? Or are you gonna... I'd be happy to. I didn't okay. want to cause a ruckus getting all this stuff done. Uh, but right so, now you've got me excited because. Um, what you got? So, yeah. The first time too, we got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or pride of life. Lust of the eyes is idolatry. Idolatria to serve what you see, and idolatry is always connected to covetousness, because covetousness is idolatry, and covetousness is basically defined as um, breathing hard something. So it's kind of hard translating that that kind of chasing, and so you're right, it is absolutely connected, and this is the definition of idolatry, which tends to confuse Christians a lot, because we don't think we live in an idolatrous society, and we're wrong. Yeah, 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 for sure. That's cool. That's a good connection, man. Cool, man. Yeah. Congrats, you can, Carson. Yeah. I'll go get this all. Sounds good. Sounds good. So are you going to draw your people? Yeah, I can draw it here. I can okay. draw on this side if you want. You can have that side. Okay. Yep. Shall I bring you pictures? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, if you have your Yeah, if you have your adopt home form, passport, go ahead. If anybody did not get a grilled cheese, or if you would just like a second or a third or whatever, they're in the kitchen, wrapped 
All right, so um, now I want to talk through basically where we go a little bit from here, how this kind of projects out, this idea of image of God, how it projects out into um, the rest of Scripture and then into our lives a little bit. So there's this quote from a 17th century French philosopher, Blaise Pascal. You guys heard of the Pascal's Wager? I don't know if you've ever heard of this, kind of his famous argument. Um, it's not actually all that great, but this thing that he says is really great. Um, there's this quote from Blaise Pascal, and he says this. I'm going to read it to you once, maybe twice, and then I'll explain it just in case you're like me and it's a little hard to get through the first time. But he says this. Um, Man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. It must also account for such amazing contradictions. Okay? Everybody got that crystal clear now? Totally get that? Um, Alright, I won't, I won't read it again. I'll just explain it. Here's what Blaise Pascal says, and I think that this is really fascinating. It is so evident when you look at human beings um, that we are simultaneously amazing and awful. That we are simultaneously incredible and the worst, alright? Um, and so what he says is, any worldview that can actually, is going to be viable, any worldview that you could actually put any trust in is going to have to be able to display both of these things, man's greatness and man's wretchedness at the same time. And it's going to have to explain how both of those things can happen at once. And there is very few, if any, worldview that can do that properly. Um, to be able to explain how both of these things subside in the same species, in the same group, that amongst uh, human beings you have people who are capable of producing antibiotics and artificial intelligence, who have the ability to send people to the moon, into outer space, who've created brilliant works of art like um, Beethoven's Midnight Sonata or Moonlight Sonata or, or the Sistine Chapel or Taj Mahal. And in this exact same group, you have the same kind of people who can produce the Holocaust and Columbine and 9-11 and sex trafficking and racial slavery. And, and all of these things all come together in one mixed bag. And, and Pascal says there's, you have to be able to account for both of those things and it is very difficult to think of any modern teaching or worldview that can do both. Um, there are some who like to really highlight kind of the beauty and the spirituality and the goodness in human beings. And what we all need to find is that divinity within ourselves and the greatness to get in touch with that which is inside of us. But they have no way to explain the fact that you're not just great, you're wretched. 
And, and then there are some that, that see us as nothing more than evolved apes, as we talked about, kind of the highest on the evolutionary chain there on the scale. Um, but, but they have no idea what to do with the beauty that flows from us, and they cannot fully explain where that comes from, comes from. And this, by the way, you can't chalk it up and just say, well, there are some people who are really good and they do amazing things like invent antibiotics. And then there's some people who are Adolf Hitler and they do like the Holocaust and things. No, no, no. This takes place not just um, in the group, but this takes place on the individual level as well. Martin Luther King Jr. is one of the most um, amazing figures of the 20th century. One of the most incredible proponents of peace and justice and love for one's enemies. There are few people who have had a greater impact on Western society in the last 50, 60 years than Martin Luther King. And he was also a serial adulterer. Someone consistently, constantly using women um, for his own sexual pleasure, even though he was married, um, to do those things. Thomas Jefferson is this brilliant genius mind that put together much of what our government rests on, much of what modern democracy, not just here but in the world, has been based on the incredible thinking of Thomas Jefferson, and he's also, at a fundamental level, incredibly racist. And you can try to chalk that up to something easy and just say, well, they're just hypocrites. And, and, and I guess you could sort of make that case, but to say that because Martin Luther King was an adulterer, that means everything he ever said about love was just a fraud or was just fake. I, it's not that simple. It's not, I, I really do believe that the good things he did were good things and that they came from good intentions. To, to say that, or, or to try and say, well, they're just good people who made mistakes. Thomas Jefferson is a good person. He just made, you know, a couple little mistakes. One of those mistakes was racism, right? Um, not that simple. It's no. To be racist means that you are wretched, means that you are wicked, but that does not take away from the amazing things that Thomas Jefferson did as well. And, and the problem is we don't know how to hold those two things together very well. There's almost no worldview that can do it, that can put those things all in one place. Pascal says the only one he knows of that's able to do it is Christianity. The Christianity is the only one that can say both things and has a way to do it to hold those two things together. And, and the way that Christianity does it is through the things that we've taught the last two weeks. That every human being is made, um, is designed, so you could actually say this is design right here, is designed with what we call, the Latin verb is, uh, uh, term is imago Dei, the image of God within him. And because of the image of God within human beings, every person has in them this capacity for beauty and greatness and morality and amazing feats of love and purpose and sacrifice in them. And there's no way around that, that everything has it. And so humanity comes with this already in it. And it's an amazing ability to do some really great and good things. Um, but we also taught last week, so this is Genesis 1, Genesis 2, last week Morgan and Rachel took us into Genesis 3, which says that um, because human beings have chosen sin to live in rebellion with God, that the image of God is broken within them, um, that, that something in them shatters. And so all those things that we're meant to do um, to represent God, we don't do properly, we don't reflect Him who He is. 
and then to rule on his behalf. Instead, we try to usurp authority and rule for ourselves and make our own little kingdoms and do those things. And we do those things because our sin has severed us from relating to him. So all three of those things we fail to do because sin has entered into our lives. And, and again, if, if, you, uh, if you're not able to see it on the grand scope, you can, I think, even actually just see this in yourself. If you're ever able to be honest with yourself, um, that there are some really beautiful and amazing things about you, but there are some things that have come out of your heart, that have come out of your mouth, that have come out of your mind, um, that, sh- that, that shocked you when you realized that you were living that way. That, that, that would make you ashamed if you had to stand up and repeat out loud what you said or what you did um, for the great fear of everyone in here knowing because there's something that flows out of you that is also very wretched along with that greatness in you. And, and so this is the issue. And, and what we find is every person knows this to be true in them on some level. Everyone recognizes that there is some sort of void, some sort of emptiness, something that I should be, even if they don't got words for it, even if they can't put it into words or put it into full expression, but that there's some sort of ideal that I ought to be. There's something that I ought to be attaining. And so what happens is we seek to fill those, to fill this void with all kinds of other things, um, be that entertainment or be that pleasure or be that fame or success, whatever we can do to kind of fill that in. And over and over again, we find that all that actually does is pushes us further apart. It fragments us more and more as we seek to fill that void with other things. And this is where religion comes in. Um, Because uh, all through history, people have recognized this, this brokenness, this office in us, and so all through history, all over the world, religions have popped up saying, yes, something's wrong with you, and this is how you fix it. And almost every religion does it without a, uh, or, or even philosophy, not even just religion, but just like modern day or even ancient philosophies, focus on one of three things. What needs to change is your actions. You need to change your behavior and be a better kind of person. That will make you whole. That will make you back to what you're longing for. Or, you need to change your thinking. You need to change the way you see the world. You need to change your knowledge. You need to grow in your understanding. Or, you need to change your feelings. You need to change the way you feel about things. For most people, um, like uh, some would say this in like Buddhism, and, and the Stoics back in the first century would have said, what you need to do is not be um, enslaved to your feelings anymore. You need to disconnect from your feelings. And all of them would say these three things as means of trying to fix this thing because they're trying to answer this question, can human beings be fixed? Actually, first, this question. This is a question that popped up in a table group a couple weeks ago. I don't think we shared it in here. Actually, no, I did. At the very end of, the, at the very end of our talk, we, we mentioned this question that popped up. Is it possible for human beings to be so far gone, so far broken, that this can't be seen or brought back again? Is it possible to be so sinful, for that to run so deep inside of humanity or inside an individual person or a nation that they cannot be brought back to what this is, that this gets lost in them completely? And the answer to that question is uh, yes and no. Or I'll I'll go no and yes, all right? Um, No... You cannot ever, a person like we said, the dignity of being made in God's image is inherent. 
and it cannot be taken away. That, that inside of us, that ability to, to be of worth and of value because we are made in God's image, never goes away, although it can be um, shrunk down. It can be degraded. It can be minimalized, all right? Um, and, and so that's in answer to that question, no, you can't fully take it away, but, but here's where I'll say yes. And what I'm about to say is going to be really depressing and, and sound uh, maybe shocking to some of you, but hang with me for five minutes. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, is it possible to get so broken apart that you cannot be repaired or fixed back to this? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, and, and you are. Um, you are so broken and messed up. And, and so, was, uh, so was Thomas Jefferson, and so was Martin Luther King Jr., and so was anyone you can think of. Everyone for all time is actually this, to an extent that they cannot possibly be repaired. But there is no way. Um, if you take a mirror, which is, we, we use this illustration, this is what we are as image bearers. We're like mirrors that reflect the beauty and the glory of God out to the rest of the world. That people ought to see me, and they ought to see God in me as I reflect that, his character and his nature. If you take a mirror, and you shatter that mirror, okay, you can try all you want. You can go buy the best glue in the world. Um, you can sit there and try and put every little piece back arranged in order, but there is no way to fix that again. There is no way to repair that. You might be able to get it kind of back up on the wall again, but it's just going to be this kind of fragmented mess on the wall. You can't. The only thing you can do is throw that away and go get a new one. It's the only way you'll ever get back to what that mirror is supposed to do, which is properly reflect your image in it. And so that's, that's kind of the realization that gets seen in Scripture, that there is no way to completely repair or fix this, and so what needs to happen is a new one needs to come in. And this is where the story of Christianity gets really crazy. It says this, that God was so committed to this, so committed to having human beings in his image, that he decided to bind himself up with humanity forever. To actually tie himself in and lock himself up through the sending of his son. So that God would come and be the image of God here on the earth. This is what it says in Colossians 1. If you've got your Bible, you can go there. This is a fascinating passage. Colossians 1, verse 15, says this. <clears throat> he, that's Jesus, is... You see the word there? He is the image he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his, uh, by the blood of his cross. So, here's what Paul says, actually. God goes, it's not possible to repair or fix this. 
So I'm going to start again. And what he does is he sends Jesus. And Jesus, it actually says in, in just a couple verses before that, verse 13, it calls Jesus the beloved son, which means the relationship that you and I were designed to have but got lost and severed, Jesus has perfectly. And then it says that he is the image of the invisible God. And the reason why is because all the fullness of God dwells in him in verse 19. And so therefore he now represents as you and I were designed to represent but never could because of sin. And then it says that he is the head over all things, that everything was made through him and for him, which means he takes over the authority and the ruling that we were designed to do. And so he comes out and perfectly lives out the image. And so what you see is that our design was broken through our sin and through the fall, but then God works in to bring in a new image bearer. Sorry. In Jesus. And that Jesus comes and becomes the new image bearer. Um, and then the really, really cool thing that takes place is that from there we are now allowed to be a part of that. We're allowed to participate in that. Read the very next couple of verses in this. Verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order present, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So Paul says, God started again with the new image bearer, and then he says, and because of him, when you place your faith in Jesus, he then makes you holy and blameless and above reproach so that you can take on the same image of Christ. This is actually, you read it last week in Colossians 3, where it says that we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of our Creator. So you cannot be fixed. You cannot be repaired, but you can be reborn. You can be redeemed. You can be remade. And, and so, actually, this thing comes full circle. Sorry, where's my marker? This thing ends up coming full circle, so that we're oh, standing there in front of me. So, um, uh, that we were designed like this, lost it through sin, but through faith in Jesus, actually, Paul says that you are being remade back into what you were designed to be. That you are actually becoming the kind of person, as you're made into the image of Christ, you're made into the image of God again. Uh, again, you always have that, but, but that ability to know Him as you ought to. There's, and, and to rule on his behalf, to partner with him in making the world the kind of place where flourishing and joy and love reigns as we submit under the king and, and to be the kind of people who then reflect his glory out to the world. That takes place as, through faith, you are joined and united to Christ and then sanctified by the Spirit. There is no other worldview that I can think of, and I've been trying to rack my brain today. If you've got one, come talk to me. There is no other worldview that is able to simultaneously hold both the greatness and the wretchedness of man at the same time. And there is no other worldview I can think of that has more than a surface level fix for the problem of our, of our wretchedness. Um, something that goes deeper than just the skin, um, that is able to go from the heart, from the inside out, rebirthing a person into the kind of person who can then live out the design that they were made for again. And I think that that is beautiful, and I think that Pascal's on to something when he points these things out to us. So, the question then, though, is how does this then play out into the rest of our life? And that's kind of where Scott wants to yeah, jump in. I want to get there, but, you know, 
this was huge for me several years ago when uh, I guess it had been about eight years ago I was just in this theology program and where they talked about the, the dignity and the depravity you know and, and that always stuck with me and that's it's that same idea yeah, yeah. that that we are both we have this dignity as image bearers and yet we have this depravity this, this sinfulness in us and but what's what's awesome about this is, you know, the things I talked about earlier about, um, you know, seeing, seeing something we think is good and going after it ends up not being good for us. This is where Christ be- comes in and begins to change our desires, begins, begins to change the things that we want. In fact, um, one, one person described um, freedom as wanting the things that God wants for you. Like, you're free when you begin to want to do the things that God would want you to do, and that when those desires change, and I can look back on my life, and I can, over the last 20 years as I've been walking with Christ, and go, yeah, I, I, my desires have changed. I want to be at church. I want to read my Bible. I, I want to be with other believers. Like there's these things that I want that I didn't want then, that I want now. And God is changing those desires. Yeah, yeah. I think about um, Hebrews 12. So think about all the things we see, and then we chase after. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says about what the true image bearer saw. It said, uh, says actually, it tells you to fix your eyes on Jesus, who, and then it says this really weird phrase, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, hmm. which doesn't make any sense to anybody who's like a normal human ever. Um, went to the cross because yeah. of the joy that was coming in that. Right. Um, and, and what happens is you have... You have a true image bearer who's actually to see, who's able to see the great joy of obedience yeah. and the great joy of sacrifice, which doesn't even sound natural to us. Yeah. But he actually begins to make that natural in us as we become more and more like him. So that's huge. And so the, the one big thing I want to talk about is actually the reason why you are all here, um, most, most, most likely, is, is to get a job and to work. And I think, I think work has gotten kind of a bad rap. And I don't know if you've picked up on this, but work was a part of the design before the fall. I don't know if you've picked up on that. Like, there was, there was work to be done before Genesis chapter 3. So somehow God has wired in us this desire to work, and, and there's, there's a purpose for it. So I want to talk about just how, how, how the work that God has given us to do is both a design, it's designed in us, and it is part of our dignity. Like it becomes part of our dignity to actually want to work and want to make a difference in this world. And so I want I want to here's what I want to do. I want to talk about how we see this in in God's example in Genesis 1 and then take it to kind of this bigger picture to help us see what we're what we're talking about and then bring it back down to where you are right now. And, and I want to help give you a picture of what this looks like in the future and this, what this looks like for you right now in college. But and I want to start with this quote. So a guy named Tim Keller wrote a book um, called Every Good Endeavor. And it's basically the theology of work. It's a phenomenal book. If, you're, if, you, if you've read any of Tim, Tim Keller, you know it's, it's well thought out. It's concise. Well, maybe not. It's big. It's thick. But it's thought out. Um, um, stri- strategically said. I mean, it's, it's great stuff. But in it, he, he says this in the introduction. I think this is really good. He said, If the God of the Bible exists, and there is a true reality beneath 
and behind this one, this, this one that we see. And this, and this life is not the only life. Then every good endeavor, even the, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. So here's what's true of all of us in this room, is that we all, we all want to do something that matters, that makes a difference. We, we wouldn't be at college, you wouldn't be spending thousands of dollars and in going into debt and whatever to, if you, if you didn't want to make a difference, if you didn't want to do something that mattered in this world. So all of us want that. And what, what he's pointing at is, is he's pointing back to this design we were, we were made with in the garden um, that, that you, you can actually make a difference. And it doesn't mean that you can only make a difference if you're teaching the Bible or if you're evangelizing your coworker or your neighbor or if you're going on a mission trip. That's when, Whenever, unfortunately, I'll apologize for pastors, whenever pastors... Um, talk in those kinds of ways. Like, the, the real kind of life is, is doing vocational ministry. And then, you know, if you can't do that, do something else. That's terrible. That's terrible theology, actually. That's not the way God designed this to be. And, I, and so I want, I want you guys to leave here with a greater sense of freedom in where God has you, and then also purpose in, in going forward. So, so work is our design and dignity. So, so what does that mean? What, what do we do with it? Well, I think, I think what we see in Genesis 1 is that God is creating and cultivating. So He's creating, he's creating an environment and He's cultivating um, life within that environment. And so it's no surprise that He would want us to do the same thing. We were made to create and to cultivate. As His image bearers, as, as His representatives, as His little statues wherever we go, pointing people to Him, we were made to create and cultivate. And so, God created the world, and here's how He did it. We talked about this, that he, Genesis 1 is, is more focused on how God brought order and purpose to the world. And then He, and then he um, cultivated life for it to flourish. Right? So we talked about how in Genesis, in, in the, the first day, um, God created and then how it corresponds with day 4. And then day two, right, the, the skies and the sea and how it corresponds to day five, the, the birds and the fish. And then day three, God created the, the land and the vegetation that corresponds with animals and human. And so in all these things, God's establishing order and purpose and He's creating and cultivating so that life can flourish. And He gives us the exact kind of model and example that we are designed to have, which is to create and to cultivate. So here's how Tim Keller describes that. Okay, and then I want to give you, then I want to read to you an example of somebody who's doing it. He, here's what he says. To create and cultivate ultimately is it's rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Okay? So another guy named Andy Crouch. And Andy, Andy is a, he's a pastor and a teacher. wrote a book called um, Culture Making. And Andy's married to his wife. His name's Catherine. And Catherine is a physics professor at, at a small university in Pennsylvania. I, I'd never heard of the school. Uh, but here's how Andy describes how Catherine creates a culture in her classroom and in her laboratory. Okay, listen to this. 
says, Catherine could do much to shape the culture of her courses and her research lab. In the somewhat sterile and technological environment of a physics laboratory, she can play classical music to create an atmosphere of creativity and beauty. She can shape the way her students respond to, to exciting and disappointing results. She can, she can model both hard work and good rest rather than frantic work and, fit, and fitful procrastination. That one stings a little. But that's another story, <laughs> if, if you know me. Bringing her children with her to work occasionally, she can create a culture where family is not an interruption from work and where research and teaching are, not, are natural parts of a mother's life. By inviting students into her home, she can show that she values them as persons, not just units of research productivity. At the small scale of her laboratory and classroom, she, can, she, can, she has real ability to reshape the world. You know what I like about that? I picture the students and what they see in her. And, and, and you guys are in the same boat. You know, it's a, it's a, the, the time of life you're in is both exciting and scary. You, 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 know, you know both of those two things. But, but something that I remember I was doing, which was looking around to like look for examples and look for models and look for someone to kind of help me figure out how I'm supposed to do this thing called life. And so what Catherine's doing is she's modeling uh, somebody who enjoys her job and loves her family. She's, she's modeling someone who, th- who intentionally thinks about the kind of music she might play that might help create the best kind of environment for learning, right? That's a person that's, that's waking up each day going, okay, God, th- th- these are the things that you've, these are the opportunities you've given me. What do you want, what do you want to do with, what do you want me to do with them? Um, how do you want me to partner with you in what you want to do here? So think about that. Okay, so think about your relationships. Think about your responsibilities. Like, do you think you, you are related to the people you're related to or friends with the people you're friends with or roommates with the people you're roommates with for just, like, some random happenstance? Like, you could have been made, think about this, you could have been made and, and brought into this world at any time at any place, and, and yet it was here and now. To know the people that you know now. So all those relationships that you have, all of them, God has a purpose for them. Like, and, and God wants to partner with you to help create and cultivate like true life in that relationship. So think about the responsibilities you have. All of you have responsibilities. If you have a car, if, you have, if you're in school, if you have a job, if you have... Uh, if you live somewhere, um, you have responsibilities. You have things that you're responsible for, people that may count on you. And, and so, like, all of those things, God, God wants to partner with you. God wa- God's saying, okay, hey, I have, I have a plan for those things. Just will you, te- will you depend on me? Will you trust me? Will you look to me for those things? Will you seek me for those things? Now, Think about your jobs in the future, wherever, whatever that may be. Like any and every job that, that you do, that, that you do at, because you feel led to, or um, called to, or gifted to, or maybe, maybe you just find yourself in, okay? Maybe you're waiting for something to open up and you find yourself in this place. Wh- whatever you're doing, 
I, it, all of these things, you can partner with God to create and cultivate in order to bring order and purpose and to help life flourish. And to help um, the gospel flourish. To help somebody be encouraged. To help someone understand and see like how they're wired and what they're gifted at. To be encouraged, to be challenged, to all these things. Like, every, like there, is no, there is no job or task or opportunity or responsibility that is too small or too big that is, that is somehow disconnected from what God wants to partner you with to help create and cultivate. And that's, I hope that, that frees you. Because it, it means that you don't have, there's not just one thing that you're meant to do, and if you don't figure that out, and God's up in heaven going, well, they haven't asked the right questions yet. I'm not going to tell them. Nope, not going to. You know, I think sometimes we, we think, like, God, you, obviously you want me to be happy, and you want me to do what I'm supposed to do, so just tell me already. And, and that's not, like, how this works. Like, you, what, like you're, you have opportunities now. You have relationships and responsibilities now. And if you're always thinking, yeah, help me figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life so when I get there, I'll, 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 I'll serve you for it. And God's going, yeah, you're, like, do with your life now. Like, there's a now happening. And, you, and you're missing it by your freaking out over what's next. And I get it, because I was there and I remember... I remember the, that season, and I remember like I was walking in darkness. I mean, and the only paths ahead of me that I could see were the, like the next steps in front of me, and everything else out there was just pitch black, and I had no idea where I was going or what I was supposed to be doing, and I remember that. Now I look back and go, that was exciting, but yeah, I didn't so much think of it back then as exciting. But like, you know, Every industry, music and, and, and fashion and farming and technology and counseling and engineering, architecture, art, education, dental medicine, food, you know, industries, all these things, all of these are, are just places where you can partner with God to create and to cultivate. And that's what God has designed you to do. Like, it's exciting, it's awesome that you have this opportunity. So, no task is too big or too small. And God is, hasn't just left you alone to figure it out. Like in Christ, He's with you, He's present, and He's active, and He's wanting to partner, He's wanting to partner with you. And so, so now I want to come back to like where you are now. And, and I think about where you're at, and I think about the different areas of your life. And so, so let's say, um, mine aren't as cool as, my little stick figures aren't as cool as, his over there, but it's my gingerbread man. Yeah, your gingerbread. <laughs> yeah. So let's say this is you, and you have a family, right? And then you have friends, um, and then you have school, and then you have let's say work. Um, and let's let's put hobbies. Okay, you have hobbies, and let's say you're a Christian. So we'll put we'll put Jesus in a bubble. Don't ever do that. Um, but so so like you think about these things, and I uh, I think when I was early on in my college years, this is how I lived. I I went to church on Sundays. Okay, did that, did the church thing. Um, but like Monday through Saturday was like the rest of my time. So I had friends that I hung out with, 
that I hung out with. That's all, that's what we did. We played basketball, and that's about it. Um, until I broke my ankle, and then I stopped playing basketball. And then I just watched them play basketball. It's terrible. Uh, and I had a family that I would come home to and hang out with, and you know, have to go places with or whatever. And then I I worked while I was in college. So I actually, I had a really good job. Made twenty some dollars an hour. It was awesome. This was twenty years ago, by the way. So uh, I had a phenomenal job. Made a lot of money. And then part time even. And then I and then I was in school. I I uh, went to a junior college. So. I, I would earn enough money in, in one two-week paycheck to pay for a semester of college because it was junior college and it was cheap. Anyway, so I was rolling in it. Uh, I went to school, played basketball, all these things. Th this, is, this is called, this was me. Um, this is a disconnected life as a follower of Jesus. Disconnected. It's because there's all these different bubbles and Jesus and God, and church, or whatever, it's just kind of its own thing, not connected to anything else, in fact, like, my hobbies didn't really interact with my family, um, school didn't really have any part of anything else, none of it really connected, okay, so that's maybe some of you, this is me, early on in college, and then here, here's another one, we call this ducks in a row, And this one is a little more intentional. So you're going to help me order these things. Which one's first? Oh, wow. Hey, good. Good answer. Um, what's second? Family or, family or school? Family or school? Yeah, you're going to say family because, you know, you know, because family's paying for school. So let's, just in case they see that. What's next? You're gonna say school or friends or hobbies? Who said? Who said basketball? Somebody's gonna be here for six years. Anyway, uh, what? Friends or school? Oh, okay, because because they're, they're people. So you know, we'll put school here. We'll put work there. We'll put hobbies there because we're good people or whatever. So, so this is this is another way that people live, and this this is a little more intentional. Because they're like, okay, there are priorities, people, you know. And, of course, you know, we're in a Christian thing right now, so we're going to say Jesus is first, right? And then family, and then, you know. But the reality is, in life, like, this doesn't work. Because right now, this one takes up all of your time and money. Like 30 to 40 hours. I don't know how, many, how much you guys spend. 20 to 30, right? I don't know. Is that too much? How, how many hours? 50 hours, okay, Go, anybody, can anybody beat that? Can anybody beat 50 hours? Okay, maybe Andrew. Um, no, but seriously, this has taken up most of your time and energy. By the way, I thought, I thought Jesus was supposed to. So wait, should I read the Bible more and go to church more? And then, wait a minute. I thought it was supposed to be my number one priority. See, this, this way doesn't, it's a little more intentional, but it, it doesn't really work. And what we found is, like the, the best way for this to really work is, is for all of this to be one bubble. And you can take Jesus out of the bubble, put him in the bigger bubble. I don't know. Maybe he is the bubble. Jesus is the bubble. That's, wow. That's, and you know what? I'm going to put in this, I'm going to put church. Um, 
because you should go to church. Um, so, like, when the gospel, like a gospel-centered life, that's what this, this one is. This, is. this is a big one for us. The gospel-centered life is, is beginning to look at each of these things and go, okay, Lord, you, you've given me a family that you've given me. So how, how do you, how does the gospel, how does what you've done in Christ shape me so that I can look at them the way you want me to look at them? And, and when I'm with my friends, God, help me to see what you want me to see. Like, part, let, let me partner with you with what you are doing in their life. Um, you know, with school. Every time you're sitting down, you're doing a paper, you're doing, working on, you know, studying, whatever, for a test. Or maybe you're in a class you don't, you don't like. I was talking to a student earlier this week, and, and, and this particular student was describing how, he's, you know, when he's in classes he doesn't like, he ha- really has to work at kind of thinking, okay, yeah, I don't really care about this class, and yeah, I don't really care what I get, but I'm here, and and because I know this is honors God, I, I need to like put my best effort forward. And that's a person who lives a gospel-centered life. That's thinking about the bigger picture. That's realizing like every class you're in, like there's a way to honor God in that class. Like there's people sitting next to you. There's a teacher. That there's all these things going. There's so much, so many bigger things going on than we realize. Right? Hobbies. Like it's not just about you going and doing things, something you like. It's like, okay. God has wired me and gifted me with these things that I enjoy to do. Huh, I wonder why. Maybe Jesus, I don't know. Um, maybe he wants to use that, to, you know. I love Smash Bros. Actually, I've never played it. Um, but some of you do. And so what do you do? You, you bring it here and you guys get together and try to beat each other. I don't know. So, like, all these things become this way to look at life. And, and guys, this... If you can go through college as a follower of Jesus who's, who's trusted Him with your life, and if you can start thinking through life like this, you will get so much more out of this place than you could have ever imagined. So I'm excited. In fact, I, a great example of, great example of, um, of recognizing opportunities that you have and, and then wanting to create and cultivate Okay, great example of this happened tonight, all right? And I'm not, I don't mean to embarrass her, um, but I'm, I'm going to embarrass her. Um, so Sarah Oliver, who was up here earlier, she was talking about the Group Me app, right? She came to me Wednesday morning. She said, hey, um, less, less and less students are on Facebook, which he and I, we've talked about this for a while. We realize this. Less and less students are on Facebook. Yeah, and that's kind of our primary way of, like, communicating to you guys. She goes, hey, I've... I've I've hosted this group me thing with like all of Stout Hall, and so would you be interested in maybe having a table wide group me? Because I think we can maybe more communicate more effectively things that are, that are going on, so that people will know about it. And I'm like, I've never really thought about that. That sounds great. Um, so she said, All right, I'll, let me work up like a sketch, and I'll, I'll send you maybe what like a, a template would be. And and so she did, and she put this thing together, and I. I think it's, I mean, this is somebody who didn't have to come up to me and say this, but she goes, you know what, I think there could be a more effective way to help create and cultivate life flourishing here at the table. It's a great example to me. It should be a great example to you. It's, it's, it's not monumental. It's, it's just purposeful. And I think it's encouraging. So I don't know, any, any, any thoughts you have on any of this? I'll just say what we discovered uh 
is that that kind of life that Scott just drew up on the board is a matter of both mind and heart. It's a matter of both knowledge and desire. And so um, Scott just gave you the knowledge. Scott just helped you with the mind part. Uh, like that's the first part of the battle is seeing it that way, being able to understand that every part of my life can fit in to this, that Jesus is the bubble. Um, that's our new catchphrase, uh, which is coined. Um, to change so, the banner up there. But. Yep, yep. Um, but here's what this can't do for you, actually. This can't, this can't do anything for your heart. Like, you can recognize that that's what you ought to do, but it doesn't mean that that's what you start doing. Um, something in your heart needs to want that kind of life, right? And that's what this one is for. Yep. Um, that's why we call it the gospel-centered life, because this kind of life flows out of a reflection that I was this, and Jesus made me this. Mm. And if I was this, and if I had no way to repair or fix myself, but Jesus came and made me new anyway. And if I was completely against him, and while I was against him, he left me enough to die for me. Then the more I know that and reflect on that, the more I go, why wouldn't I live like this? Why, why wouldn't I want to, out of the overflow, give every part of my life to Jesus? And so um, this takes not just the knowledge, but a constant coming back to this truth here. And so we have to daily kind of preach the gospel to ourselves about what Jesus has done for us to let this shape our... That's why we used to actually, our phrase for this used to be integrated faith. And then we realized every time we explained to a student how you get there, we had to go back to the gospel. And so we just thought, let's just call it that, a gospel-centered life. Um, a life that lets uh, Jesus' work and identity shape every part of who I am. And, and so that's, that's the issue there. That's why this becomes so pivotal. We got we've got a couple minutes. Any any questions? Any thoughts? Real quick before we pray and close. We never do that, but Casey, you got a question? Okay. She does not have a question. Cool. We answered all your questions. Awesome. Uh, let me pray. Let me pray for you. Pray for us. God, I pray that it is true um, that we would leave here more in love with you and what you've done, um, feel a greater desire to, to seek you, to trust you with our life, for, especially for what you've done in Jesus, and that out of that, God, that we would find greater clarity about where you have us and and what you called us to do. And so God, I pray that we would leave here changed because of you. And because of who you are, and what you've done, and who we are as a result. And so I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do not forget to sign up for Adopt-A-Home if you want to do that. Yes. And get one of those group me cards or ask somebody to include you in it or whatever if you, if you want again. Otherwise, you won't know what's happening. And you'll get left out of all the cool kids stuff. So. <laughs> we got grilled cheese. Eat another grilled cheese. Eat more grilled cheese. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, good to see you, man. Nice to see you. Glad you came. I stay and so, talk, but I've got due dates. You got due dates. So you have a class every every uh, week at this time. Or? I'm in the Statesman Choir, which runs from 6:45 to 8. So 8. And so, okay. Just down the street. Okay.
down the street. Yeah, 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 got it. We, yeah, we try, we'll try to get started by like 10 after 8 or 5 after 10 after sometimes. And so sometimes we have, just so you know, in the future, we have this back door unlocked to kind of sneak in if you need to or want, just so okay. you're not distracting or whatever. But yeah, we'd love to have you, man. All right. Thank okay. you. See you later. Nice to meet you, Carson. All right. Do you mind if I take a picture of this real quick? Oh.